Welcome to Supplier Experience Live from Hicks, where we explore all the latest topics, trends, and discussion points in the world of procurement, procurement technology, and supplier experience management. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. For this podcast, we're heading to York, and I'm delighted to introduce David Lowesby, who's advisor, author, and speaker, and visiting scholar at the University of East Anglia. So, hi, David, and welcome to the Hicks podcast. Hi, Duncan. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, and, uh, you know, just probably uh, uh, a little bit about me in terms of the fact that, uh, as, as most people refer to me these days, I am I am what they call a pracademic. So, in other words, that that wonderful blend between a practitioner and an academic. So I span both worlds um, and quite intentionally. Um, so I do um, thought leadership and advisory for many organisations and quite a number actually in the digital space, oddly enough, which is um, it's quite interesting, but also, um, you know, have been working on a number of uh, of different sort of um, projects academically, from uh, research papers uh, right the way through to uh, reconstructing and scripting and structuring new executive MBA courses um, for UEA, um, and just about to actually to embark upon um, a new journey um, with uh, Leeds University Business School as their uh, professor of research impact. So. Uh, new ventures there to come. So um, quite quite a different sort of uh, mix of, of things there to go at. Absolutely, fantastic. And um, for, for those who perhaps don't uh, don't know yet, could you also give a little bit of background around um, what you've done in the procurement space? Absolutely. Um, so um, I guess I've been a, uh, a group CPO, global CPO, CPO, for probably several decades now, but in many different sectors, um, from retail, FMCG, pharmaceutical, um, aerospace and defence, manufacturing, uh, banking, um, and and but most of it has been sort of um, in in the vein of 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 delivering change and transformation within organisations, whether that's in a what people refer to as a brownfield. Um, context or a greenfield context um, but usually um, with a uh, more of a I'll call it a global footprint um, for most organizations with some exceptions um, but generally speaking that's that's been the thrust of it but in 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 many of those situations certainly over the last five or six years um, have involved quite uh, significant amounts of uh, what I'll refer to as a digital implementations and digital transformations. So, um, again, I think that's very much sort of the uh, the flavour, if you like, of, of many things to come. And I've got some statistics on that if people are interested too. So, you know, I think that's that's really a, a reasonable flavour uh, of, of what I've done. Well, absolutely, and I think it, it leads me nicely actually into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is this this whole idea of change and, and transformation. Um, as you've mentioned, we hear a lot about uh, digital transformation, perhaps less so procurement transformation, but all in that sort of bucket of, of change and transformation. But I, I'd be interested to know from your perspective what you kind of understand under those terms or how we should perhaps approach thinking about transformation. Yes, yeah, so I think I think um, the first thing probably to say is that transformation means different things to different people. Um, and, and, and obviously, as, as, as we as we know, it, it can be it can be on a, a very wide ranging scale to something quite um, small in terms of how can I put it 
the duration, the significance of the of the um, activity being transformed. It can be quite localized. So I think the reality is that 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 you what you have to do is to construct an approach that's appropriate for um, the level, I'll call it, of uh, and the impact of transformation that you're you're embarking upon because. Um, some of that might be very what I call light touch. Some of it might be quite almost invasive, you know, and I think I think for me, making sure making sure that you understand um, not only not only the, the transformation that's about to be undertaken, but also really truly understand what currently exists, because I, I, I think many people make lots of assumptions about um, I'll call it the current situation. It's a very simple technique that many category managers will, will I'm sure will recognize, which is what we call situation target proposal, which is the classic. You put everything down on one one sheet of A4, which is where am I today? Where do I want to get to the target and the proposal? How am I going to get there? And I think having that discipline of really, truly understanding the current situation, who's impacted both directly and in, indirectly, what systems might be impacted, what processes, et cetera, et cetera. And recognizing that that more often than not, many of many of the impacts are outside of procurement and supply chain. Um, often not. We we are the, I'll call it the catalysts of change in procurement and supply chain, rather than necessarily being the parties that are subject to uh, change and transformation, but but obviously more recently, uh, as we've seen with the advent of um, and and the necessity, I'll say, of having uh, good digital systems to support uh, decision uh, making type activities, um, then I think the the recognition is that that we need to understand, you know, who else gets affected or impacted by anything that we might want to consider and. I'll call it have the humility in a sense to listen very actively and keenly to what others might have to say um, before we embark upon any change and transformation. I've seen many change and transformation programs launched before they've even listened to the organization or the people impacted. Um, and I think that's that's a probably a surefire way of, of disengaging or disenfranchising uh, parties that are to be um, involved in a, in a transformation. So I think it's hugely important that that journey, that journey map in a sense is properly mapped out, but on the basis of you, you, you have no assumptions left effectively before you start, which is you do truly understand what's being transformed, how long it will take um, and all the different states and stages, I'll call it, of um, an organization may be in throughout the duration of that change or transformation. There's many cases where it's a bit like the sort of the, um, the, the classic sort of, um, you know, sort of, uh, I'll call it the chemistry sort of approach of, of sort of solid liquid gas type of thing, you know, which is there'll be different states that will be formed throughout that journey. Um, and it's hugely important that people understand those different states and evolutions and phases um, if not only just to simply provide reassurance that there's clarity about their direction of travel as an individual um, there's so many times when you know i've seen i've seen particularly with large transformations where a transformation is launched yet 
many individuals, if you like, who are impacted by that don't truly and fully understand what that means for them. And I think that that is a, a fundamental flaw in lots and lots of change, of course. Um, so for me, as I said, I, I think it's about having that really clear plan. It's transparent as, as obviously as you can be. And there are other occasions whereby you can be tra transparent about what I call the macro plan, but often not. Sometimes you may have to deliver the detailed information in phases because otherwise you end up in information overload um, and that won't that won't be uh, be good for many people because it's just that cognitive overload. It's just it's too much information and I can't assimilate all of that information. So you give it to them in, in what I call bite sized chunks that, that are digestible, understandable, but at the same time in an ethical way that is that is not detrimental to to sort of not declaring it, shall I say, uh, the full extent or or, or impact uh, of, a, of a transformation, uh, whether that's an organisational transformation, a digital transformation or whatever it happens to be, it can it, it still needs to follow the same approach. I love the idea that you mentioned of the, the journey map because we, we were talking about this before, the importance of having those reference points. So for instance, you mentioned understanding the current state, being able to very clearly identify what you're doing and where you want to get to, listening to that feedback and iterating and taking on board, taking people on the journey, so to speak. But it's all about those reference points, right, to, to, to know where you're up to in order to keep projects on track. Yes, yeah, very much so. And I think also one of the things that, that uh, and, and again, I would say this as a behavioural scientist because that's where I am by background, um, People, people will always have what I call this, this, this need to ensure that fairness has been delivered. So that sense of fairness, even though um, from time to time there will be some quite um, impactful news to deliver to teams, in the in the in in the in the need to, to actually deliver that fairness, sometimes you have to deliver some hard messages. And I think it, I mean. It, it goes back to an instance way back, probably 15 or more years ago, when I had the unenviable task of um, reshaping and resizing a a, um, uh, a public sector body, um, and and that meant that there were going to be you know staff reductions of about 30%. Now, what I found was that that it was interesting that many people said to me they appreciated the authenticity and the honesty um, around saying actually at the end of this there may not be a job for you so therefore what do we need to do to help you understand you know what skills you might need what support you might need how we, how we can sort of best think about are there any other alternatives because we, we have to have a plan b for you we can't just have a an exit plan and, and it was interesting that many people said it's refreshing and um, it's better that, that that I've actually got an honest view because it allows me then to think about and 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 consider what my future might be and what my options might be very early on in this process rather than you know I'm in inverted commas missold misled along the journey only to find that actually. Um, I'm a victim at the end of it and it was interesting that many people appreciated that approach rather than the um, how can I put it 
the more covert, I'll call it, approach, which um, often or not results in quite quite bad sentiment and feeling. And the recognition also by me that those people that that mo in the most cases I think chose to leave the organisation actually had good ties and links and connections with people that remained in the organisation. So that sense of fairness and the way in which you ethically then treated people throughout that process was then embedded, if you like, in the people then that were retained in the organisation. So actually it built up a very good, how can I put it, um, uh, sense of fairness and trust in, in the way in which, you know, we were going to take the journey going forward. And so it was hugely important in terms of motivating the individuals that remained in the organisation. So I think that's something that, that some people may want to to consider, particularly in, 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 in the context of quite sometimes quite, you know, hard and 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 um, quite um, difficult transformations. But it, it is it is nevertheless a, an important factor. And uh, you mentioned there the, the hard messages and you also uh, spoke about science. And one of the things that you've spoken about before, which is uh, digital Darwinism. Yes, it's my interest, because, of course, as you say, these these changes are necessary. Right. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, the digital Darwinism, how that relates to what you've seen in procurement and supply chain management. Yes, I think I think I think this this digital Darwinism really, really. Um, I mean, I, I can't claim claim the sort of the uh, how can I put it the uh, the headline, but I think the the harsh reality of the fact that the comparative between Darwin's theory of evolution and the evolutionary journey, I guess, that procurement and supply chain is going on, is 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 very similar, particularly with, with the advent of. Um, digitalization of, of many things that we're doing and for very good reason as well because the real the harsh reality is that we can't manually assimilate at speed all the things that we need to make effective decisions that's that's just the that's just the brass facts of, of life if you like um but i think when you when you stare into it and you look at the facts that that by 2026 i think it is or 2025 um the 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 digital economy uh, in 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 uh, in digital digital systems um, and associated services is going to be worth about three trillion dollars, um, which, when you consider we're currently at about one point five trillion dollars, that gives us a compound annual growth rate in that space of about seventeen and a half percent for those that are mathematically minded, um, which is hugely significant. Um, and you can understand why, because, as I said, the the fact that that, that evolution um, is so important, and and it also then reminds us of the fact that should we choose to sort of I'll call it disrupt ourselves, or are we going to wait to be disrupted by the business and organisational structures? And I guess I I look at it from the point of view of saying if. If disruption is going to happen and it's pretty inevitable, then I'd, I'd far sooner do it, do it to myself because I can have a bit more control over it. It's going to it's still going to be painful, but actually the reality is that that I stand a better chance of coming out in a more favourable state than if I leave it just to the devices of whatever's going to happen to me from whichever direction it comes from. Um, that seems to be quite a sort of... Um, 
I think I think that's quite a sort of a, what I call an ostrich mentality, which is stick your head in the sand and, you know, and then wait for the big bang um, doesn't feel right. So whilst we might have to face into some tough decisions, I think it's better facing into them um, and leaning into the, the I'll call it the digital wins of the future rather than um, simply waiting for it to, to hit us at, at, at an unknown moment with an unknown velocity doesn't seem to be the, the sensible thing to do. So I think the whole the whole concept of digital Darwinism is really is predicated around the fact that that evolution. But I think it's sort of um, it's almost like evolution on speed, if you like, because the reality is that this is going to happen over a very short space of time, and certainly by the end of the decade. Um, I would be hugely surprised that if that there are any organizations left that don't have well structured cleansed data uh, utilizing I'll call it probably a combination of digital platforms because let's face it one one size doesn't fit all um, but I think again through that collaboration of, of different digital players I think I think we can have a better place to operate in. But I think also we'll, we'll know, know a lot more about and be able to use more effectively um, unstructured data, which is the greater part of the data that sits out there today um, than we have today, which which will enrich um, our, our ability to make effective decisions going forward. And uh, actually sticking with that theme of evolution, and you, you've touched on it briefly there, um, the, the role of technology and uh, specifically data, right? That seems to be yes. the theme that comes out of this. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the, it's going to be manually, uh, sorry, it's going to be from from manual to how do we do this at speed, right? That's the, the transition. Yes. So it is because I think if you think about it today, the, 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 I remember having a discussion with a group of CPOs probably 18 months or so ago. And, and we, we, we all talked about sort of real time risk management as being a concept that would be uh, something that would be quite pioneering um, and, and incredibly invaluable because the more time you have to assimilate, understand, develop a plan, respond and react to a situation, the better. Um, it's, you know, I. I, I, you know, the more the more time that you have to, uh, and again, you know, typically as you will know yourself, the vast, probably I think it's about seventy percent of uh, disruption comes from tier two and below, um, in terms of disruption in supply chains. Now we're quite good at sort of mapping through to tier one, um, but then it sort of seems to sort of um, how can we get a lot more sketchy after that. Um, and you know you, you you see lots of surveys where you know people said yeah I've mapped I've mapped to tier one but actually um, tier two tier three tier four well that's you know that's that's just too difficult and so I think I think the reality is as we as we start to to um, to build more powerful digital platforms that can actually help us assimilate that those interconnected nodes of of of, of supply. Um, then I think it will help us then in terms of then building in that resilience. And, you know, we've got all sorts of factors like, um, you know, 
huge swathes of more legislation coming our way um, and, and the need to be ever so more um, transparent, um, to be able to, to effectively report and declare, you know, the way in which our supply chains are operating, um, validate and make, make very public statements about there is no slave labour in there, there's no child labour, uh, all those kind of things. Um, I don't think I would sleep easy in my bed if, if I thought I'm doing that and I'm, I'm signing this off on the behalf of my tier four suppliers, but yet I really don't know enough about them. That seems like a, how can I put it, a, a bit of a nightmare scenario. And so therefore we, we have to do something about that. And that's, not, that's why I say I think facing into this sort of, you know, evolutionary sort of period that we're in, this Darwinism, Darwinism period that we're in, I think that that we have to do that. I think that's the responsible thing to do. And also be, it, it's, a, it's a bit like a bit like the classic sort of um, analogy whereby knowing that you have a problem is halfway to solving it. Denying that you have a problem in the first place is actually the worst place of all because you don't you don't even recognize what the what the scale or the size or indeed what exactly what the problem is so i do think that there's there's a huge amount of emphasis on um that that need to be able to be really clear and precise about what the extent of the challenge is because it is pretty substantive um and the, the speed with which the legislation is coming in. You look at the, the German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, you know, goes live 1st of January next year. You've got um, the, uh, if you like, the second tier organisations of that act going live on the 1st of January 2024. You've got the, um, the new act that's coming in the US for the Uruguay sort of workers uh, from Shenzhen. Um, and you know, so so making sure there's no slave labour in there, you know, and that comes live 21st of June. Um, you know, many people I think are, you know, just hoping that you know, if I keep my head down, it'll all go away. Well, it's not. It's actually the what, when you look at the, the what's on the stocks with the legislation coming through. Guess what? There's more, and it's and it's going to be more significant in terms of its its impact. So. The, the the evolutionary piece for me and if for procurement is and supply chain is that that we just need to get our head around it because if we don't it's it's that classic just denying that actually there's a you know it's denying like that the, the the night is going to come well yes it will come you know it's it's an inevitability um it's not it's not a question of if it comes it will come so therefore we need to be be ready for that and i think those organizations that are and we'll continue to recognize that, invest in it, uh, not not just um, in in pure systems, but also in skills, capability, um, you know, the architecture that they put in place, the structures, the organizational structures that they put in place to support that. Um, I think they will be the winners. But I think I think this this sort of um, just purely and simply responding to the here and now of you know I've got I've got a problem with um, you know the cost has gone up ten percent by X Y Z supplier and that's all I focus on. Um, I think they're going to they're going to be the dinosaurs that leave lose out in Darwin's evolution. 
So I think you illustrated it very nicely, actually, with the examples that you gave of all of the, the different ways in which we're going to need more information to um, support some of these legislative changes that are coming online in order to run the kind of programs and initiatives that, that we need to run in terms of uh, there's the ESG initiatives, there's all kinds of different uh, data and information demands and so therefore that necessitates the, the technology side and of course there's always this danger that you're that you fall into the trap of uh, sort of throwing a, a digital platform to fix a problem but there's and I want to sort of lean on your um, behavioural sciences background a little bit. There's a yes. people aspect to, to this as well. Hugely. Right? So, Hugely. Um, and the one of the things I'd be interested to know from, from your perspective is what are some of the challenges in terms of the adoption of uh, new technologies or and how have you overcome some of these in, in the past? I think I think I think it, it's interesting because when, when people say, oh, no, we're, we're, we're doing a digital transformation, their thoughts immediately race the fact that this is about IT technology systems, etc. Yet the biggest, the, the biggest, the biggest reason why uh, organisations don't get successful, I call it adoption, within their organisations, um, is the people factor. It's one of the most significant factors, and like I say to many people, what, what you're doing is, but, but by putting a digital system in, you're changing the ways of working, you're changing somebody's, um, you know, the way in which they, they engage with their work, the, the way in which they deliver their work, um, the way in which they might collaborate, all of those kind of things. So I think the reality is that, um, you know, you've got this sort of situation where you've got all the, all the sort of the I'll call it the the, the rational and 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 the, and the logical things, you know, quite clearly mapped out and understood. But what you don't have then is you haven't understood the capability uh, and, and the motivations, if you like, in a sense, for those people then are directly and indirectly affected by that. And so, one of the things that that as, again, as I say, as a uh, as an applied behavioral scientist you start to think about then so um how 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 can i begin to understand um where people sit in this whole digital transformation piece and think about the way in which um i'll call it um you tap into and understand what their motivations are what their concerns are um, and, you know, the reality is, I mean, I, I put in a huge digital system during the pandemic. And one of the things I said to people is that you've got to recognise that the cognitive load at the moment for people in organisations when you've got COVID-19 and people are concerned about, you know, um, am I going to get COVID-19? Is my family going to get COVID-19? Uh, might I die from this? Um, uh, there are job losses being announced, um, you know, all kinds of things like that, you know, and, and you know, am, am I going to be furloughed, therefore I'm going to lose money, you know, all sorts of things that were going through people's minds and that, that whole cognitive load. And at the same time, you're trying to teach somebody how to do their job differently. And I said, you've got, you've got to understand that You've got to be respectful of that and you've got to understand what that means then to to, to the individuals that are going through that. Um, 
and I think you've got to you've got to set out a program in a way that um, connects with them as an individual. It provides motivations and incentives for them to want to do things in a different way, um, but also um, help help them back to this sort of journey again. Get, help them to understand what their what their almost what their personal journey looks like because many many people were told well stop using this system this old system's redundant forget excel spreadsheets forget this forget that um and actually it's all going to be through this system that can be quite a daunting prospect for many many people um and I think I think what we lose sight of is the fact that, that there are many people sitting there thinking either a actually I'm not interested I don't want to do this I quite like my job as it is thank you very much and as we're now seeing the sort of the big you know what they call the great resignation and all those sorts of things about you know forcing people back into an office uh, five days a week you know all those kind of things but again I think that this is this is this is exactly the same in the digital transformation which is understanding what what the, the, the if you like the drivers of people's behavior is and understanding then what their motivational systems are understanding how you can provide i'll call it recognition reward uh, incentive um, for them to do things in a different way and be help them understand what that sort of that evolution and that journey looks like for them hugely important um i mean that the harsh reality is that that um, and again, you may know the, the detail way more than me, but from my research, ostensibly the adoption rates are probably between 30 and 50% for most digital systems. Um, in the digital system, the last big digital system that I put in uh, with a 95% plus adoption rate was, was, I think, down to the fact that we really truly understood the individuals we put in place a very ethical plan. Um, we made sure that there were incentives and motivations for individuals to do this um, and took a very different approach and used behavioral science in a an applied way because it was necessary. And if we think about it, it to use our logical brain for a moment, most business cases are based on the fact that there's a hundred percent adoption. In other words, everybody's using the system to its full I'll call it capability, um, as opposed to, I'll call it um, digital uh, digital compliance, which is I've logged on, I've created my profile, um, and I've done the bare minimum. But don't ask me to start doing this, 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 and this sort of thing because I'm not interested. And so I think that's the, for me, that's the sort of the um, uh, the central issue to why getting digital transformations uh, to be successful is such a challenge because um, the change management approach when applied is often quite, I'll call it traditional and probably applied at the whole organizational level, not at the individual level. Um, and furthermore, many organizations actually don't even consider that, I'll call it the, the people aspect at all, and simply focus on what I call system and process, which is, highly flawed from the beginning so that's that's my view for what it's worth yeah i think that's really interesting and it's it's also interesting i think from uh, a procurement perspective that of course quite often you've got the added complication that 
um, not only business users within the organization, but also the suppliers on the other side will be Correct. users of these systems as well. Yes. But I'm guessing that some of those same principles that you've mentioned also apply to suppliers, because at the end of the day, it's, it's people using the system. So yes. understand the drivers of behavior, the motivations, reward and incentivize uh, in order for the suppliers to also get used to this new way of, of collaboration. Absolutely. And, and, and telling them way in advance as well, because um, what you'll recognize again is, you know, if you think about your tier one suppliers to your tier two, three, four suppliers, um, there'll be a whole bunch of SMEs that are quite, quite intrinsically valuable to, to an organization. Yet, if you think about the fact that, um, you know, somebody who might be a an engineer is also has to do some of the sales and marketing, also has to do a bit of the accounts and this, that, and the other as an SME. And then you want to sort of stretch them even further and go, actually, I need you to do this, this, and this as a supplier into my new system. Then you, you have to think about, so how can I help those people? Because if I don't, the risk is that I could lose quite valuable pieces of my supply chain. Um, simply because I've not thought about the way in which I will properly uh, in, motivate, support, incentivize and, and create, if you like, the, the right mechanisms by which I can engage that supply chain. Um, and so, again, as you say, it's hugely important because there are lots of people who are recipients of reports or, um, you know, need to be there, you know, as, a, as an interconnector into other parts of the business, into finance and service level agreements and all sorts of things that come out of the systems. So um, I think I think that sort of true sort of what I call um, understanding of the complete network that's associated with a digital platform um, rather than a very simplistic one, again, is hugely important. And of course, it's all around this um, collaboration. So we've uh, we've spoken yes. about that, the the networking, the collaboration with others, understanding yeah. who's uh, who's involved. And of course, procurement is moving away from pure cost savings as the the lens through which they view the world to yeah. becoming more of a value uh, enabler. Um, and that's also linked to the idea of perhaps what the future vision of procurement should be, um, or what it might look like in the future. We talk about the elevation of procurement. So. Um, just about to wrap up, I'd love to know your views on where you see procurement going or what you see <laughs> as the, the sort of future procurement vision and what that should be. I think the, the future the future for procurement, in a sense, I think um, is almost in its own hands, really, in a way, which is the extent to which we embrace, um, I'll call it um, digital transformation, will be hugely um important in that whole journey but i do i do see us at a bit of a crossroads in terms of um getting ahead around the fact that we do need operational excellence and within that again based upon personal experience there are good cases for putting um subject matter experts so for instance if you looked at somebody who is an expert in um anti-bribery and corruption, KYP, you know, know your partner, um, ESG, whatever it happens to be, um, makes a lot of sense because if you think about the fact that if you put all of that onto onto the on onto just 
let's say a category manager for argument's sake, uh, just to, just to sort of make it um, uh, uh, understandable. If you ask a category manager, not only just to know the market, the, the suppliers, but actually really know in detail exactly all the regulations and legislation associated with ESG. So all the sustainability, human rights, slave labor, all those kind of things, all the things about, you know, risk management, all the things about cybersecurity as a specialism, it's not possible. So the reality is, I think what we'll end up with is, is you know, centers of excellence around oper operational, um, you know, excellence and, and expertise. And then we'll end up with um, a bunch of other people then that will be more predisposed to highly skilled around relationship management, strategic thinking, critical thinking skills, that sort of thing, so that they become almost what I call the value architects that are at the, at the forefront of driving competitive advantage for the organization. And that might even be to the extent of thinking about, you know, revenue generation, not just cost savings. And it might be thinking about uh, risk mitigation and not just cost savings. So, so I think it's a broader remit. Um, but I think intrinsic within that then, they will need subject matter experts um, to be able to support them um, in doing that because they can't be expected to be, you know, all things to all people because that, that is just not, not possible, not possible. So I do think that we're at that crossroads. And um, some of the things that you mentioned there, of course, also uh, require those soft skills. And I know you, you've written on this as well, which is the, the soft skills for hard business piece. So I'd love to know um, a little bit more about that or what you're working on next or, or what's next for you, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think I think next for me is 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 probably to continue to develop that sort of portfolio of activity. But but I would say co-centric around a number of things, which is which is um, digital transformation, uh, but with a, I'll call it a, um, a heavy dose of um, behavioral science applied to it. Um, uh, obviously supporting uh, and doing some of the work that I do in, in the academic space. So uh, more research papers, more collaborations um, and, and evolving and developing um, the uh, research excellence framework um, with um, Leeds and other businesses, uh, Leeds University that is, uh, Leeds University Business School. So doing things like that, that um, help provide those connectors, those bridge spanners between academia and thought leadership in procurement and supply chain um, and and developing that space more robustly. Um, I think the, 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 the um, how can I put it? the the uh, the artificial barriers between academia and business um need to be broken down so i'm 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 sort of firmly firmly of the of the belief that trying to sort of um resolve that sort of dissonance between the two is is hugely important and will unlock lots and lots of value um there's value there's value to be added by both sides into the equation and, and obviously the classic sort of you know the sum of some of the parts is greater than 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 the individual pieces themselves so i do believe that that additive piece is 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 really where uh, i'll be focusing the the next few years of my attention i think 
Fantastic. And I'm sure some people want to continue the conversation with you. So I'm guessing LinkedIn is the, the best place to. Absolutely. To yeah, absolutely. Good, a good, a good vehicle to do that for sure. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot, David, for joining us. Lots of great advice there. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button. Or for more information about us, visit our website, www.hicks.com.